Good morning. morning. I say that again, so good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Brand new teaching series. This will take us to the end of the year. And uh, Advent began last weekend. It's four weeks prior to Christmas. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next uh, coming weeks. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of John, the first chapter there. We will be dissecting that first chapter, not the whole chapter, but a lot of it over the coming weeks. John does a phenomenal job at really explaining the meaning of Christmas there in those uh, opening verses, and uh, so that's what we're going to focus in on. So let me ask you this question. What's your favorite Christmas song? What's your favorite Christmas song? My, uh, my wife and I, we had our uh, grandkids, all nine of our grandkids, over to our place yesterday. Grandma was having them do gingerbread houses. They made a total mess of the place. It was crazy and out of control. But the kids, uh, our grandkids from up north, from Chino Valley area, Prescott area, they were singing their favorite Christmas song. Grandma got ran over by a reindeer. <laughs> and they were singing that to Grandma, and they were getting a kick out of it. And then they threw Grandpa in there. And they said, Grandpa got ran over by a reindeer. I said, wait, 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 wait. wait. Grandpa doesn't get run, run over by a reindeer. Grandpa can outrun Grandma. Okay? And so I don't know where you're getting this. So we're going to have to talk to my son to see what he's teaching these kids. So that was their favorite song. You'll see that we've titled this series that takes us to the end of the year, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See. It's a phrase from the Christmas song. Anybody know? Hark the herald angels sing. It's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful thought. It's talking about the incarnation, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. We're going to talk about the wonder of the incarnation, and, and this weekend we're going to talk about the light he brings, the light he brings. And as I said, the Gospel of John, as we begin to read through that, we're only going to look at the first 11 verses, but the first 18 verses are really the prologue, prologue to the book, and it's giving us uh, the credentials of Christ, of the Messiah. In fact, in uh, John chapter 20, verse 31, John makes it very clear why he wrote this down. He wrote this book because he wanted us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing we might have life in his name. And that's the whole purpose of it. And so that's what we'll be looking at so that we can experience the life that's in his name and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Back when uh, Desert Breeze was at the nightclub over at 17th Avenue and Bell Road, how many remember those days? How many know what I'm talking about? There's a few of us that remember those days. 17th Avenue and Bell Road. In that building, it was an old nightclub and it was, there was kind of a maze of rooms in the back of the building where transients on a few occasions would sneak in and sleep. And so before we'd lock up the building, we'd have to kind of go through and uh, clear the building. And so I walked into one of the dark rooms and was startled by a big scary figure and was desperate to turn on the lights so that I could see before I got taken out. So have you ever done that before? You kind of go into a panic and say, where's the light switch? What was that that I saw? Ah! And uh, so as I did that, Once I turned the lights on, I realized that the big scary figure was my own reflection in a mirror, okay? And uh, I just thought, nothing's wrong here. I'm, I'm okay. Take a look at your sermon notes. Why do we put lights on our homes and trees and light candles to celebrate Christmas? Well, the answer is because Christmas is about light coming into this dark world through the birth of Jesus Christ. 
And, uh, and in fact, the text we're going to be reading, the first 11 verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, seven times in our text the word light is used. So it sounds like John's trying to get a point across here. Seven times he talks about light. So the three questions we're looking at here this morning that, we, that I believe that answers this for us, John answers this for us in our text, why do we desperately need this light? What is this light? How can we experience this light? That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me once again? And let's pray before we read through our text and unpack these notes. So Father God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. And in this dark and scary fallen world with so much sin and suffering, hurt and heartache, we are often filled with questions and doubts and fears. Thank you for the amazing gift of your son Jesus who is the light of this world. And whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12 tells us that. And thank you for the amazing gift of your word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. So as we study your word, may the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ dispel any darkness in our lives so that the gospel will shine ever so brightly through our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. Take a look at the text here. Let me read through it and see if you can identify the number of times that he uses the word light. Chapter 1 of John, verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the, there's the first time, light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the, what is it? The light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is the word of the Lord. So let's take a look at this. First question on your notes, why do we desperately need this light? That's answered for us in verse 5, verses 9 through 11. Let me read verse 5 once again. Keep your Bibles open. You can follow along. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, is what he says. We'll, we'll define, in fact, it's on your notes there, we'll define that phrase, the darkness has not overcome it, but let me read to you verse 9 first. And he says, the true light, so he's referring to this as the true light, the true light, as opposed to false lights. So our world is filled with false lights. He's saying, this is the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Proverbs, two times in Proverbs, one of those times is found in Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man that leads to what? Anybody? Death, destruction. So you can think that you're on the right path. You can feel like you're on the right path. And that path can lead you to destruction or to death, as he says. So he's saying here, the true light. This is the true light. Every other light will lead you to destruction. The Bible's really, really clear about this. 
Now, what is this idea that darkness has not overcome it? Look at on your notes there. The Greek here, the understanding. Uh, the writer, John, is a little bit ambiguous and, and because it's a, it's, it has a really a, a broad meaning here, and it means we are clueless about this light and hostile to this light. So we're, we're not only clueless, but we're hostile. In fact, he kind of expounds on that in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, he was in the world and the world was not made, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. They were clueless about him. The very world that he created, he came and was a part of that world, and the world did not know him. So that's that idea, the darkness has not overcome it. We are clueless about it, verse 10, but also hostile to it, to this light. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. In fact, we know they did more than not receive him, they crucified him, they murdered him. And that's that idea, the darkness has not overcome it. So darkness symbolizes sin, Evil, suffering, and, and ignorance, that idea of that you can't see reality. It's like, like being in a dark room, kind of groping for the light switch. I, 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 where's the light? And we live in a very dark world, and I see a lot of people trying to find the light switch or even say, well, this is the light switch or this is the light, which indeed it is not the true light. And... Um, and so darkness symbolizes sin, suffering, ignorance. To say that the world is a dark place is to say that it is filled with evil and suffering and we don't have the knowledge or the ability to solve it. That's the point that John is trying to get across here. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah wrote this some six, 700 years before the birth of Christ, predicting the coming of the Messiah. And Matthew uh, also makes reference to this verse in Matthew 4, 15 through 16. Listen to what Isaiah says, also along Matthew quoting Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So, so why do we desperately need light? Well, because, here's your first fill in the blank, the world is a dark place, sin and suffering. Now, we're somewhat protected by some of that sin and suffering to a certain degree because uh, you get out of this country and you can really see a lot of sin and suffering, more suffering than anything. There's a ton of sin here, and there's a lot of suffering here. But you get out beyond America, uh, the United States, and you go into third world countries, oh my goodness, you see even more of that. But, but, but we have it right here in our country. Just look out into the neighborhood, look into your own family, look, uh, turn on the news. A lot of sin and suffering. The world is a dark place. Here's the second thought. We don't have the ability to solve it. We're ignorant of, of what, what are we going to do with all of this sin and suffering. And then the third point is that we need help outside the human race. We need help outside the human race. We're not going to be able to solve our problems through human speculation, only by divine revelation. That's the only way that it will be solved. That's the point that John is trying to make here. Now, every year our culture tries to re-engineer the purpose of Christmas. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we tend to do that. And you, you, you hear this from time to time. Well, let's not say Merry Christmas because that's offensive to some folks. Let's just say Happy Holidays or we try to do all these kind of things. And, and really the idea behind that, and it kind of goes throughout the year too, is that love will triumph and we will be able to put together a world of peace. 
The meaning of Christmas is that if we will all pull together, we can create a world of unity and peace. What do you guys think? Think we can do that? Are you kidding? We've had 242 years to try to pull that off here in America, and it's not happening. It's not happening. I mean, all you got to do is look around. I mean, when people come up with this saying, hey, if we could just do this or if we could do that, then this is going to solve all of our problems. Guess what? It hasn't. It won't. That's the point that he's making here. And so the meaning of Christmas is that if we all pull together, we can create a world of unity and peace. Well, that's the exact opposite of the meaning of Christmas. In fact, it is not from them, the human race, a light has come, but upon them a light has come. Look at verse 5. The light shines not from, but in the darkness. Look at also verse 9. The true light was coming into the world from outside in. Listen to what uh, Timothy Keller says in his book, Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth of Behind the the birth of Jesus, he says this, um, he says, one of the most thoughtful world leaders of the last 20th century was Vaclav Havel, the first president of the Czech Republic. He had a unique vantage point from which to peer deeply into both socialism and capitalism. He's, he'd experienced cultures in both of those, socialism and capitalism, and he was not optimistic that either would, would by itself solve the greatest human problems. He knew that science, unguided by moral principles, had given us the Holocaust. He concluded that neither technology nor the state nor the market alone could save us from nuclear conflict, ethnic violence, or environmental degradation. And this is what he said, Pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. He said, a turning to and seeking of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets that he is not God. And so we are in desperate need. We live in a dark world we live in a dark world. The world is a dark place, sin and suffering. We don't have the ability to solve it. We're ignorant about how to solve this problem. We need help outside the human race. And um, I mean, I just, I read the report here the last couple of weeks. CDC just reported that we have had over 70,000 overdose deaths this last year. And good old God bless America. And, and in fact, it also reported the suicide rate has increased 30% in the last 15 years. The suicide rate's not going down, it's going up here in our culture. And so, so much for the pursuit of happiness, the land of the free and the home of the brave. We need help. So, so when you get frustrated over maybe education or politics or self-help programs that are all rampant in our culture today, those are all good. Those are not gonna solve our problem. Only Christ will solve our problem. We are in desperate need of help outside of us, outside of us. And so what is this light? What is this light? That's the next question, verses 1 through 3. And we know that this light that he's talking about is Jesus Christ, verse 14. We didn't read that. And that's not part of our text, but he tells us that in verse 14 there in John 
chapter 1. In fact, let me read that first part. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's change the word there from Word to Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. That would be appropriate because that's who he's talking about here. So in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Notice there's not an article A there, not a God, no article in the Greek, as the Jehovah Witnesses claim there is in their New World Translation, which is inappropriate and wrong. Stay away from the New World Translation, but there's no article there, so Jesus is God, was God. He was in the beginning with God. That word idea, that word with means um, as Jesus was with his disciples for three years, he was in relationship, intimacy with them. There was a closeness. That's the idea here. He says he was in the beginning with God to have a relationship with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So let me give you some fill in the blanks. Here's the first thought as it relates to what is this light? We know this light is Jesus and we know that from this text, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Verse one says, and the word or Jesus was God. Verse 3, all things were made through him. In fact, if, if there's any question whatsoever, it's, it's throughout the scripture, but let me just give you all the different places where we know for fact that it, it's declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. This is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. This is one of the many things that separates Christianity from the major cults and religions of our world today is, is the deity of Jesus, that Jesus, Jesus is God. So, so how do we know there is a God? Not by human speculation, but by divine revelation. He has revealed himself to us. Okay, so how has he done that? Well, we know that the Bible says that he's revealed himself to us through creation, our conscience, commandments, his word. He wrote it down. And ultimately, through Jesus Christ, he showed up here. God in the flesh. He came to this world. For we, for God for Jesus, the word came in and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory of the only begotten son, full of grace and truth. That's what he says in verse 14 of, of this text. He's talking about Jesus. God came in flesh to dwell among us, to hang out with us. He was the way, the truth, and the life. That's the point. Jesus is God. How do we know that? Well, gospel of John 1, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Revelations 1. They all talk about the deity of Jesus. So that's why I don't understand when the Jehovah Witnesses try to tamper with the Bible and try to change that because they deny the deity of Christ. In fact, let me read to you. I've got a chart here that I like to pull out from time to time. I'll use this in our Game of Life class. But it's a chart. It's produced by Rose Publishers. And what they've done here is they've taken, they compare 17 religions and cults with biblical Christianity. They do a great job with kind of taking the, the main, uh, the essentials really of the Christian faith and then lay them side by side with other religious beliefs. And by the way, anybody that says, well, don't they just kind of all say the same thing? Aren't they all kind of heading in the same direction? And I always know when someone says that, that they obviously haven't done much study of the world religions and compared them to historical Christianity, because there is major difference. There's major contradiction between all of them, particularly with historical Christianity. And I won't read historical Christianity. We're just saying, we're claiming, and this is what 
Gospel of John says, and we know that according to Colossians and Hebrews and Revelation, that God, Jesus is God in the flesh. And there's much more to that. But listen to what Mormons claim, and I've had a lot of really good Mormon friends, and they're really good people. But listen to what uh, Mormonism believes as it relates to Jesus. This is what they say. Jesus is a separate God from the Father, Elohim. That should give you kind of a red flag immediately if you understand the the triune God, the Trinity, and, and really understanding that. He was created as a spirit child by the Father and Mother in heaven and is the elder brother of all men and spirit beings. His body was created through sexual union between Elohim and Mary. Jesus was married... His death on the cross does not provide full atonement for all sin, but does provide everyone with resurrection. Pretty fascinating. I mean, there should be red flags popping up just as you're reading through that. And you go, oh, oh, that's not biblical. That's not. If you know Bible, if you understand the scriptures, it, it falls way outside of the pale of orthodoxy and who Christ is. Let's, let's go with the, with the Jehovah Witnesses. I've already talked about them. I had some friends that were Jehovah Witnesses. And, um, and listen to what they say about Jesus. Um, Jesus is not God. That's what they say. He's not God. Before he lived on earth, he was Michael the archangel. Jehovah made the universe through him. On earth, he was a man who lived a perfect life. After dying on a stake, not a cross, and they make a big deal about that. It's really kind of interesting that they want to make that kind of an arguing point. But he was resurrected as a spirit. His body was destroyed. Jesus is not coming again. He returned invisibly in 1914 in spirit. Very soon, he and the angels will destroy all non-Jehovah's witnesses. So uh, let, me, let me just go one more because I've got a lot here, but let me just go one more maybe you're familiar with, and that is Islam, Islam. My wife and I, have, we have neighbors right across the street that are Islamic, they're, they're Muslim, and, um, and let me, I, I, we've, we've cultivated a relationship with them. And I, they were taking out their trash this last uh, weekend, I, and I was taking out mine, and she waved, and I walked over. And we typically will walk over and interact with her. So I went over, talked with her, and we, we knew this, that her husband has gone back to Syria. She's a little bit brokenhearted over, over that, and, and her kids are moving out of the house and various things like that. So she was kind of weeping a little bit, and, uh, and then she told me that she has been listening to our messages here. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that wild? I'm like, oh, wow, that's fantastic. And then she said she wanted to introduce me to the iman over here at the uh, community, the, the Islamic community center where she worships, where she attends. So it's just really fascinating. We'll see what God does in that. But here's what, uh, here's what Islam says. Jesus is one of up to 124,000 prophets sent by God to various cultures. Abraham, Moses, and Muhammad are others. Jesus was born of a virgin, but is not the son of God sinless, not divine or God himself. He was not crucified. He ascended to heaven without dying. He is referred to as Messiah. And they have another name here, which is just, he's a sign of God. Jesus will return in the future to live and die. So all I'm saying is that there's like, there's major confusion. And listen, there is a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. Two times in the book of Proverbs, it makes that very clear. You can think you're on track, but you're on a track that's going to lead to destruction. 
Truth matters. And that's why we have the Gospels, that's why we have the Bible, and that's why John is very clear that Jesus is God. Here's the next thing. Jesus is in a love relationship with God. That's that idea and it's, we understand it as the Trinity. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but it's all over the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And let us make man in whose image? Our image, right from the get-go, right from the very first book of the Bible, we begin to see this idea of the triune God. And, uh, and, and also, look at Matthew 20. That's at, that, you need to change that. It's on your notes. I've got 18, 19. That's not accurate. It's 28, 19. It says that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize folks, baptize people in the name of who? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 1, the Word, Jesus, was with God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, in the beginning with God, in relationship with God. It's talking about the triune God. Now, you're not going to be able to understand the Trinity. Don't try. Your brain's too small, okay? It's like mine's too small. This is a mystery. This is what I love about God. Mysteries of God are not to be conquered, but they're to, to be celebrated. So there are many mysteries of God. Hypostatic union of Jesus is another mystery. This whole idea between the divine sovereignty and human responsibility, how they work hand in hand. There's so many mysteries. You're not going to be able to wrap your brain around it. You're not going to understand that. The, the fact that God is omnipresent, he's omnipotent. A lot of who God is beyond our finite minds to fully grasp. That's what I love about God. That's what I celebrate about God. He's bigger than anything I could ever dream or imagine. I need a God that big. You do too. And so you're not going to be able to wrap your brain around that, but you need to embrace it and understand the theology of that. So the Trinity is that God is one in essence and three in person. It's a paradox, but it's not a contradiction. If you want more understanding of that, you can go to our app or to our website, our DB app or website, and in 2012, we taught a series, The God You Long For, and the God you long for is triune. It would be under that heading, and we go into more detail about the doctrine of the Trinity. But this is what you need to know about the Trinity. From all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in a loving relationship, delighting in each other. And so when you think of Trinity, think of that. And listen to what he says in John chapter 1, verse 18. We'll be reading this in a few weeks. It'll be part of our text that we'll study. But he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Some translations actually say, in the bosom of the Father. How many are familiar with the way that's written there? Maybe you've heard that or read that before. It's really interesting. The Greek literally means that, in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Talking about Jesus being in the bosom of the Father. What is that about? Well, let me, let me give you kind of an analogy here. If you were laying on a couch, how many people in this world would you feel comfortable coming over without invitation to lay next to you? Does it seem a little weird? Hey, get away from me. Why are you laying next to me? We're just watching a movie together. Get away from me. What he's talking about here in the bosom of the Father, this represents the most intimate kind of relationship. So imagine a time in your life that you felt the most loved, the most understood, the most appreciated, the most adored, the most secure, the most significant. 
Do you remember the joy in that? Now multiply that by a billion and you will have what the Trinity has been experiencing for all eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Even the very best friendship, marriage, family relationship is a dim glimpse of that. God is infinitely loving, happy, content, endlessly basking in relationship with with one another within the triune Godhead. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing thought. So let me ask you this question. If a triune God already had perfect joy in himself, why did he create us? Turn to the person next to you and see if you can answer that. That's a really, really important question. It really helps to define why do we exist. Real quick, do that. So here's the, here's, the, here's the question, let me give you the answer. And uh, so if a triune God already had perfect joy in himself, why did he create us? He created us not to, not to get joy from us, but to give joy to us. How many were kind of close to that? Just show of hands. Okay, there's like three of us. It's like the first service. You got me really nervous here. You guys have a lot of learning to do, okay? Okay, that's why we talk about this stuff. Listen, you were created not because God was lonely. He was not lonely, okay? He doesn't need you. He wants you. He created you. He loves you. And he draws us into this relationship with him. He wants us to know the joy of knowing him, the triune God. Loving relationships is what life is all about about. It's all about loving. That's the point when you understand who God is. The essence of who God is. He's all about love. God is love. God is about relationship, the triune God. So he created us not to get joy from us, but to give joy to us. Loving relationships is what life is all about. We are recipients and givers of a love and friendship that is beyond this world. This is the love your heart longs for. This is the love you have been looking for your whole life. There's no parental love. There's no married love. There's no friendship love. There's no puppy love. And especially, there's no cat love. I'm just kidding for those of you that are cat lovers. There's no animal love. There's no kind of love in creation that compares with the love of the creator. Oh my goodness. When you experience his love and you do that on a regular basis, you're ruined forever. You're wrecked. There's no one, there is no one can love you like he loves you. That is amazing. His love is is out of this world. No one will ever love you like him. The only eyes in the universe that matter loves you, adores you, gave his life for you. 
As Christians, that should be ringing in our soul and in our hearts. We should be reveling in that every day. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I, I love the love of my wife, but it doesn't compare to his love for me. I love the love of my kids and my grandkids, but it doesn't compare to his love for me. In fact, my ability to love them is directly related to to experiencing his love, and then I can really love them appropriately. That's that's how he's wired us up. That's, That's it. The meaning of life, next on your notes, the meaning of life or life is a love relationship with God and others. That's the meaning of life. Now, let's, let's define the word, word. We've defined it as this as he's speaking of Jesus, but we need to look at the Greek understanding here. There's just, it's kind of, there's layers here. It's really deep. It's rich. It's meaningful for us. The word, word, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, but that word means, the Greek word is logos, logos, and it's where we get our word logic, reason, reality, or meaning, so you're just saying Jesus is the meaning. Jesus is, is, uh, the, is reality, is the logic, is, is the reason for life. So what, what John was doing here, John was connecting to a cultural debate. Greek philosophers of his day believed that there was a, a logos behind the universe, but at best it was an abstract proposition discovered by human speculation. And so there was a lot of disagreement about what that logos really, really was. And, and they believed that if we align with it, then life would go well, such as what's, what's the logos, the logic, the reason, the meaning for a watch? What's the logos for a watch? Is it to hammer nails or to tell time? To hammer nails. No, that's, that's not too obviously. It's to tell time. It's to tell time. What's the logic? And that's what they thought. And John blows their understanding of this word logic or logos right out of the water. And he says, no, no, the logos behind the universe is not a proposition, it's a person. And it's not discovered by human speculation, but by divine revelation. And that's what he's saying. It's amazing. It's, it's breathtaking. It, what he's saying is that, how do we know there's a God? He showed up here. And we saw his glory, and we were overwhelmed by it. Listen to what John writes. He wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote uh, First and Second and Third John, little letters, towards the end of the Bible. And this is what he says in First John chapter one, verses three through five: "That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you." What, what did he see and hear? He saw God. God in the flesh. He saw this God die for him and then resurrect on the third day. And he's he's saying, let me tell you about him. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship, intimacy with us. And indeed, our fellowship or our intimacy is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Also, you can translate that so that your joy may be complete. Good news of great joy. Second chapter of Luke, he says, when you understand the reason for Christmas, why Jesus came to this earth, God in flesh, good news of not little joy, medium joy, Small joy, no, great joy, indescribable, indestructible joy. That's what he's talking about here. 
And we are writing these things so that our joy, your joy, may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So what was the greatest commandment? Jesus was asked by lawyers, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing in life? What's the meaning of life? You could, you could kind of rephrase that. What's the meaning? What's the purpose of life? What's the logic of life? How did he answer that? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the meaning of life. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we desperately need. What is at the bottom of darkness? What's at the bottom of sin and suffering, hurt, and heartache? It's a lack of love. It's a loss of love. What is, what is war and racism and divorce and injustice and crime and violence and broken homes and broken lives and bereavement and sorrow and grief? It is always, it is always a loss of love. Sin is fundamentally self-centeredness. There's something about our heart that says, me first, me before you. So we could define light. Light is, is love, and this is how he's wanting us to understand this. Light is love. Love is, no, no, you, you first, you before me. And that's, that's what Jesus came to do as he died for you and I. And darkness would be selfishness. Me first, me before you. We want love more than anything else. We need love more than anything else. Love and relationships are what makes our lives meaningful. I have watched a lot of people die. As a, as a medic, paramedic, firefighter with Phoenix Fire for a number of years and then as a pastor. But just in the last few weeks, my dad died November the 20th, if you were here, been with us for the last few weeks, November the 20th on a Tuesday uh, night, and then exactly two weeks later, my father-in-law died December the 4th of this last weekend, or this last week on Tuesday. And what's fascinating about that is, and you've heard this before, no one on their deathbed talks about achievements, accomplishments, or acquisitions. What do people talk about when they're dying. They typically talk about faith, family, and friends. That's the most important things. It's about relationship. And you'll have to go online, listen to the message from last week, and I go into more details about my father-in-law. I loved him dearly. And, uh, and he, had, he had plaques on his wall. He was a veteran and uh, worked for the VA for many years. And yet he didn't talk about any of that stuff. He talked about, first of all, just getting right with God. It's like, I'm a mess. How do I do that? I don't even think he'll accept me. And he was wanting to get right with God, and then he was wanting to get right with family members, as I talked about last week, and work through those issues. And while he had already gone through like his third bout of chemotherapy, and his body was just emaciated, he was weak and really struggling, we brought our grandkids over to him a couple different times, and he was elated. He went through the ceiling. He goes, and these are, these are my great-grandkids? Yeah, these are your great-grandkids. Look at all these toe-heads. Oh, my goodness. I mean, he was just blown away. It energized him. Why would that energize him? I mean, I could have taken the plaque off. Oh, hey, look at this. Bill, look at this. Look what you've done. That didn't energize him. That wouldn't have energized him. Nothing. Not accomplishments, not achievements, not acquisition, not stuff that he had. 
or hadn't attained or whatever. It didn't. What mattered most at that point in time was relationships, relationship with God, relationships with others. And he was so elated after we brought the grandkids over that day. That evening, I had to go back over there and pull the patch off of his uh, abdomen of the chemotherapy patch that had the needle going into his skin there. And so I pulled that off. He was still elated about the experience of seeing. He was still talking about the grandkids. What's the point? The point is our lives have meaning in love and relationships. That's why we exist. That's why we draw air into our lungs. Yes, achievements and accomplishments and the acquisition of stuff, that's all good, but that is a means to the end of love and relationships. So how can we experience this light, this love relationship? Look at verses 9 through 11. This is the third question we're answering. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here's the next thought on your notes, next fill in the blank. Our sin, our selfishness separates us from him. Our sin... Our selfishness separates us from him. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fail to see how desirable and how satisfying God is. And so we tend to live for the glory of something in created as opposed to the creator. One of the things my father-in-law was asking, he's just, he was like, man, I am a, I'm a messed up guy. I have a lot of sin in my life. How could God ever forgive me? And he just said, do you have any idea how much sin I have? How could he ever forgive me? And, and I, I, I wanted to say this, that let me tell you a little bit about your daughter's sin here, and then you'll be able to feel a little better about the, okay, I, but I didn't say that, and that's, I was just kidding, but, uh, but if you think your sin is big, you should see your daughter's sin, because that's, if, if God can save her, he can save you, I didn't say that. I didn't say that, but I was thinking that just for a moment, but actually, actually what we were both thinking at the time, we were saying, Bill, are you kidding me? You see us two right here? We were as lost as you are, and the Bible levels the playing field. And when it says for all, that means all of us. And Bill, we were desperate for Jesus, just as you are desperate for him. And Jesus came and rescued us, and he died on the cross for all of our sins. And he's like, all of my sins? Yes. All of my sins. All of your sins. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. So as I saw my dad, I saw my father-in-law, their dead corpse laying there, their soul was separated from their body. That's that idea of death. Death is the soul separated from their body. But the death he's talking about here is us being separated from God. For the wages of sin is death. We're separated from God. Our sin separates us from God. And so he created us, therefore he owns us, but we don't like that. We want to be our own God. Remember verse 5, darkness has not overcome it. We are clueless about him and hostile to him. Darkness cannot overcome the light Christ came to be and to bring. It was amazing to watch the light invade the darkness of my father-in-law. I, it was amazing to watch the light of Jesus invade the darkness of my dad. And even in my own life, I've seen God do that. It's, it's absolutely amazing. In other words, no sin or suffering is a match for God's redeeming, rescuing, restoring grace. No matter what you're going through, 
no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what sin or suffering you're experiencing, no sin, no suffering is a match for his redeeming, rescuing, restoring grace. That's the gospel. Jesus died in our place for our sins. That's the next one. Jesus died in our place for our sins. Listen to these verses. These are so good. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners? Yes. You didn't want to have anything to do with God. He is relentless. He loves you. He's for you. He pursues you. He's coming after you. If you don't know him, he's coming after you. I'm telling you that. That's what it's saying. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. All the wrath of God was placed upon Jesus in our behalf. But listen to verse 10. For if while we were sinners, while we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If he didn't spare his own son to rescue us and to reconcile us back to himself, now that we're his kids, We have his life. Are you kidding me? There is nothing that you will ever face in life that can exceed his life in you and his grace working in you and through you and for you. Oh my goodness. This is absolutely out of this world. That's what he's saying. He forgives us. He reconciles us. He fills us with his presence and his love. And listen, how does he do that? Well, look at Matthew. You don't need to look there, but let me, let me tell you about Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. Two things happened on the cross. In the middle of the day, darkness came down on Jesus, symbolically. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 521 of 2 Corinthians. Darkness came on him, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was, exper- what was happening to Jesus? What was he experiencing? He was experiencing the loss of love. Jesus died in our place for our sins. He took the penalty for our sins that our sins deserve. What is the penalty for selfishness? Selfishness is its own punishment. Selfishness is the loss of love. If you're being selfish in a marriage relationship, the natural consequence and punishment is the loss of love. It's, it's true in all relationships. So what is the punishment that selfishness deserves? It's the punishment it always gets, loss of love. In fact, counselors and psychologists will tell you that there is no greater psychological pain and trauma than the loss of a spouse through death or divorce, the loss of love. And even if you have been married for 65 years like my mom and dad and had a great marriage, it is finite compared to the infinite love of the father for the son. And what the son experienced, think of the hell Jesus experienced on the cross for you and I. Here's your last point. This helps us kind of, takes us into communion here this morning. Jesus lost the love of the Father so that we never would. So that we never would. So if you have put your faith in Jesus, in the finished work of Christ Jesus, this is the promise nothing can ever separate you from his love. Romans 8 makes that clear. And Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says this, he will never, ever, ever, literally in the Greek, you can 
play it all the way out. Never, ever, 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 ever leave you or forsake you. You have his presence. He lost the love of the Father so that we never would. And so make him the reason, the logic, the meaning, the purpose for your life. And he will fill you with his love. And you will be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem in this dark world. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. So Father God, to make Jesus the reason, the meaning, the purpose in our life is more than just believing in him in some general way. But it means to marvel at Christ's indispensable and costly love for us on the cross and to give and live our lives for him and his glory as we experience regularly the greatest love of the universe that chases away all the fears in our lives. Help us to do that now. Love for you, God, and others grows out of an experience of your love for us. So may we bask in the reality of your love for us now through communion so that we can be more and more a part of the solution in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. There's three stations.